Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined, of course, as always, by Gabriel Krauser. The other half and, of your uh, host. Yeah, man, what a, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Um, one of our colleagues said to me this morning, just before we were about to do another podcast, we live in a very strange place. And uh, indeed, we do. Um, mm. <laughs> South Africa never ceases to amuse and entertain and horrify in equal measure. <laughs> equal if you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. And sometimes, sometimes you can be lucky, and I think get a lot more amusement than anything else. But uh, it really depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this it has been an interesting week. I feel that the the racism is not the problem campaign has been growing. We've been getting supporters on Facebook and Twitter. We've done lots of interviews. Uh, I've done sort of half a dozen radio interviews in the last four days. My favorite um, was doing Chai FM and Radio Islam back to back. Yeah. So I feel like if you did, if you did like a, the the best Jewish station, the best Muslim station in the same day, then that's very good. And it is the day after or a week after doing a radio uh, pulpit. Hmm. So we've hit the big three religion no, <laughs> uh, religious do, radio stations. You just yeah. need to do Hinduism, and then you've got the full set of the the big four. Um, yeah, we're so, getting on Lotus FM shortly. I think Lotus. I don't know. Is that the right place to go? Ah, uh, I think it's I think it's probably multi-denominational, but anyway. <laughs> very good, very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think also importantly, the campaign is getting some detractors, which is always a good thing because um, I think, particularly in this case, the detractors have quite a weak case, um, despite how superficially strong it looks to I think the, the received wisdom. And uh, when the detractors attack the case, not uh, the the racism is not the problem campaign they not only um give it more exposure but they also reveal the weaknesses in their own counters uh yeah so it was a thread that one of our colleagues pointed us to today that was i can't remember it was from gary cookmore i think but it was very poor <laughs> yeah no it is so weak man i'm waiting for stronger stuff but uh, dude i really just want to say because i think there's going to be more negative stuff and then when i feel sorry for myself i can talk about that at a later stage but right <laughs> now i'm feeling very bullish and I think that in a way, I mean, I've been wanting to run a campaign like this since I was a kid. Mm. The Can I just quickly share the origin story, at least from my yeah, point yeah, of view? Go ahead. Listening. Go ahead. So when I was a kid in Yeovil, inner city Johannesburg, arguably the first gray zone to sort of persist into the new South Africa, I was growing up in this sort of rainbow brochure of uh post-apartheid south africanism and it was very wonderful and we'd play in the streets together and we'd ride skateboards but we were like seven years old so we'd like sit on the skateboards or lie on our bellies rather than uh stand on them like proper americans and at some stage we'd graduate onto little bicycles and we'd ride up and down talk nonsense but when before the bicycles when we were still too small to really be riding bicycles i remember that there was a new there was a a, a terrible incident some people were moving in, some people were moving out. And so there was, you know, there'd been a 
families where neighbors would like invite each other over for a farewell and then there'd be a kind of housewarming and the housewarming didn't usually come in the form of parties but like you know exchanging pies and uh cooksitters and gifts and which was wonderful our, our neighbors moving in next door were sutus who uh speak afrikaans uh so my mom was delighted to for the first time in her life have an afrikaans neighbor to converse with over the hill uh, over the over the fence and it's like oh this new south africa thing is just full of surprises it's wonderful and they had a kid who's kind of sort of my age anyway would hang up anyway, one of the other neighbors there was a terrible incident where there'd been a bit of a party and we'd gone we'd gone over just to pay our respects and then we'd left quite early but it had stayed going a little bit because it was a bit of a drinky and smoky affair and then there was a bit of a ruckus and then a screaming match that went out into the streets. And so everyone heard about it. Oh, this terrible thing. What happened? Oh, the new neighbors, the old neighbors, well, what's going on? And because some of the shouting had happened across racial lines, there was a lot of chatter amongst the adults and the children that, like, you know, finally it's happening. Finally, there's a bit of uh, racial tension here in Yeovil, which is, until now has just been this glorious party. And uh, that seemed very plausible to me. But I was a precocious little brat, so I'd like ask the kids who were staying in the house, like, what's going on? Like, listen to the stories. And then my mom was like chatting a little bit. And then we had a chat, and she figured out a little tidbit, and I figured out a little tidbit. And we came to the realization that was really going on was an allegation of infidelity that the host Ooh. couple, the guy, was flirting with one of the neighbor's daughters. And the neighbor was like 60, and the daughter was like in her 20s. And the wife was getting a bit jelly about the flirtation. But to make matters worse, this is because they'd already had a fight and she had already accused him of actually sleeping with her. So this wasn't just like the guy being a bit of a lech and telling a 20-year-old that she's super hot. It seemed like it had this background. Anyway, yeah, adulterous potential background. Now, you know, no one called the police because it's not illegal to commit adultery and so on and so so I, there's no way to verify what was if that was actually true but you know people inside the household were definitely of the opinion that that's what happened so right. i told one of my neighbors dude i've heard some news i could do a little walk around and like we could get a pack of knickknacks for 75 cents from the uh sort of hawker on the side of the road and we're sitting there and we're having our little chats like sweet little kids like dude i've heard this story you wouldn't believe it racism wasn't the problem in the case and he wouldn't let me carry on he was like how can you say it wasn't a racist thing because they were shouting at each other like that are you saying that like it was a terrible thing and i said no no no, it was terrible it was terrible i'm just saying i don't think it was racist he's like how can you say it wasn't racist it was terrible and i was like no 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 <laughs> No, no, no. Then, then, and I could see that he was looking at me like, wow, I've known you for six months. And actually, I had no idea who you are. We're like, as soon as the screws get tightened a little bit, you turn out to be one of them. So then I was like, let me explain what I've heard. And then I had to do a lot of caveats. Like, you can't tell that you heard this from me. And I don't want you to like spread the rumor. But like, I have to tell you like all of these like silly gossipy rules uh, that I was trying to impose. Sorry, someone's trying to phone me. Um, anyway, I told him the story, and so I came to the conclusion. So I was like, dude, so like, I don't think it was a racist thing. I think it was like they, cheat, they, they were cheating on each other kind of thing. And he'd come with me the whole way through the story, and it was like terrible. And then he's like, no, but how can it not be a racist thing? They were shouting at each other. 
Like it, there was clearly it was a terrible fight. <laughs> I think and, I think any South African who believes in non-racialism has had an argument like this before, where you just come back to a sort of weird brick wall. Yeah. That, that is immune to persuasion of any kind. It's immune to evidence. It's immune to anything. It's just but racism. And the weirdest thing is that this brick wall, and this has been the brick wall that's hit me the hardest the most, this brick wall has been where someone else who's very worried about racism and really wants to combat it thinks that if racism wasn't the problem in this case, then there is no problem. Then you're saying there's no problem. And, I mean, the latest story that I covered out in uh, Petra T from Condor, that was exactly it. I mean, like, when the story is white farmers killed two innocent unarmed black work seekers, it's headline news around the country. Everyone thinks that's a terrible problem. is a very important problem. When the only version consistent with the evidence is that one of the guys who died was a hard worker on the farm who loved working there and had always stayed in that community – and the other one was like a bit of a thug for life who left as a teenager to go to Gauteng and then came back during the lockdown and then came to his brother's place of work to try and intimidate his boss to try and like squeeze some extortion money out of him. And then the bro one brother who still work who works there and loves his job starts scrumming the other brother away. This sort of sets off the first, the second incident. And then in the third incident, the, the, the thug for life brother kind of uh, bangs a guy's head over with a steel pole, pulls out his gun and starts shooting wildly into the crowd, first hitting his own brother, who's the first to try and go and stop him. That story resonates. It's such a tragic example of right. what most South Africans, according to our polls, identify as being, being the biggest issue, namely unemployment. unemployment. Mm. And then the second and third, corruption and crime, you know, and Poor police. The police were called two hours earlier, didn't come if they had. They were forced to concede under oath. No one would have died that day in that place. It's highlighting all of the major problems as identified by most South Africans. And yet, that version, as soon as that version comes out, the story dies. People are yeah. like, well, then there's no problem. If it's just, what could be less racist than two brothers, like one brother killing another brother? Uh there's nothing to see there. And it's just, so it's like this fixation on race, on trying to solve the racial issue that gets you to the point where you think either racism is the problem or there's no problem at all. Right. I think this, this, is, this is a major brick wall that one has hit again and again. And in the last couple of weeks, actually, I think we've, I've seen, I detect um, in my esteem appraisal, a shift in the other direction. I see it in the removal of Zweliam Kize, whose main ally said that before he was removed, um, you know, th there's an agenda from the media owned by white monopoly capital. And he did that interview on ENDA and then no one else carried it. And it just went nowhere. The race card just wasn't bought. And so Mkhize was removed. That's a great lesson. Uh, a great lesson in the firing of Soli Chitangane, I think is his name, the former CPO of ESCOM, who accused Andre Duret of being racist when he was dismissed. Then you get a, a tribunal. Advocate Nazim presides over it, finds that the allegations of racism are nonsense, finds that Soli has done terrible things, and then he's got to stay away. Another victory for there is a problem, corruption in this case. And racism is not the problem here. And so shut up. And he gets vindicated, and even News24 runs the story very, very nicely. 
And uh, another kind of um, bow in our quiver is that uh, the deputy president... Arrow. Arrow in our quiver. Another, another arrow in our quiver. Thank <laughs> you. you don't keep bows in your quiver. That's... <laughs> oh, you yeah, keep maybe bows good. at your breast. <laughs> so Sorry, USA. The deputy president, David Mabuza, has basically retweeted us. I mean, he didn't hashtag us, but the tweet reads something like, you know, we can't keep saying racism is the problem. There's major issues in this country. And if we keep trying to make every issue a race issue, we're never going to go forward. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, if I was to choose someone to endorse the campaign out of everyone in South Africa, I'm just going to say that David Mabuza would probably not be near the top of the list. But, you know, he's, 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 he's on the list. Yeah, no, yeah, no. So, look, I, I do have major concerns with uh, his track record and the allegations that stand against him. But it is interesting. It's an interesting, just from yes. an esteem uh, kind of analysis point of view, it does seem like... We are, and, and, and this is a moment, I believe, kind of, um, well, look, I mean, as we hit when, the third when, wave, where South Africans are finally doing this thing that I hoped would happen after COVID, which is kind of just reappraise the situation, see how terrible things are, and get practical about what the immediate challenges are and how we can solve them. And, right. and realize that solving them means having less and less patience for the everywhere racism hustlers. Yes. No, I mean, after a while, reality kind of can break through whatever facades and barriers and intellectual and ideological hocus-pocus you put up. There comes mm. a point where it's sort of like, okay, guys, but... <laughs> but but hold on now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Anyways. You can't, you, can't, you can't stamp up common sense forever. You can, you can restrain it for a very long time, but you can't kill it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how Egypt really worked. I think it might have been the ancient Egyptian dynasties might have really managed to keep common sense quite far at bay for well, a well, few well, thousand no, years. I, I, I want to hear the reason why. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like if you look at the if you look at the 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 pyramid as uh, the sort of solid pyramid as both the distribution of power and property and prestige in ancient Egypt with like a pharaoh very much solidly at the top, priestly class underneath that, not much of a land ownership class outside of that. And then this massive base carrying the weight of its antecedents on its shoulders. You know, when the average pharaoh dies, many, many people get buried with him the kind of brutality of the agrarian system that they were sort of running, particularly the priestly side of it. It was it was just very um, undiverse, very un, very intolerant of like like cappuccino sipping hipsters who feel like having their own opinions. So I think I think I think you might be surprised. Um, for example, the the whole burying people with the dead pharaoh thing actually stopped pretty early on. They bury dead people, but they don't bury live people, right? That the, the first tomb, one of the first pharaoh's tombs they found, I think they buried basically the slaves. They were like, well, your boss is dead. Guess your time's up. You've got to go serve him in the afterlife, <laughs> which is 
you know, quite a take on metaphysical spirituality and all that stuff um, that your subservience carries on into the next world. Uh, and, and actually, the people who built the pyramids were quite highly esteemed. They were allowed to be buried as an honor close to the pharaoh because it was thought to be a prime place. Um, and of course, ultimately, in a lot of ways, the project was more about prestige for the dynasty and uh, about, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a, it was a job works program. Right? Yes, because which we're quite good at. We like, we, we like that part of it. Yeah, because there's nothing to you, do in between floods. Right, exactly. So you're like, you've got all these farmers sitting about and you know they need work. So make them stack stones on top of each other into a big pyramid, <laughs> which is what the pyramids are. And yeah, uh, yeah you solve some problems. Okay, and so Nick, maybe I'm exaggerating. Yeah. Okay. As ahead. we say, it's still a tourism attraction. Literally, what? How many years later? Four thousand years later, something like very, that. Very solid. <laughs> very solid investment in that regard. No, so so common sense. I guess common sense does get you in the end. Even the craziest thing, like building the pyramid, becomes, you know, in the long run, uh, commonsensical in its way. And yeah, I do. I. I Anyway, I, I suppose it's a nice time to believe in common sense because you're running a campaign uh, whose success is partly determined by how commonsensical people are, at least in our view right. of things. Um, right. But I, 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 I want to wrap this section up by saying that it is an exciting thing and, I, and uh, maybe later on we'll get to talk a little bit about what I think our next interesting challenge is going to be. But for now... Um, it's uh, it, it seems to me worth listening to the ground and seeing if you can hear the digital vibrations <laughs> of something genuinely new in this country. Uh, not, not new in the sense that it's the first time there's been such a push or it's the first time that such an idea is out there, but new in the sense that the background conditions are just more conducive uh, than has been the case in the last 15 years to, to, to gaining ground, to, to expanding the common ground of non-racialism. Definitely, we're, we're nowhere near where we were when I was a little kid, first in Yeovil. And even then, we can see that things were going forwards and backwards at the same time. But, I mean, that was a time of great enthusiasm and great victories for a lot of the right arguments. And I think we're a long way away from something like that. This is not the this is not the earthquake moment. This is just maybe if you listen to the ground, you can hear some digital vibrations. The first tremors. Mm -hmm. Hopeful right. thought. Hopeful thought. Nick, tell us why we should be yes. uh, sort of maybe more pessimistic, just in general, than we currently are. <laughs> I don't know about that. I look. I, I'm. I'm a very. I tend to be a very pessimistic person, especially about the short term. Um, I tend to have a generally optimistic view of how things are going to go in the long term, but uh, you know, uh, we shall see. But I, I actually, I want to. But the background condition to all of these terms is is some fact, some some entity that I'm going to leave nameless, which uh, which is going to be around in the future, one way or another, uh, and. Yeah, Nicholas, let me put it to you like this. Is nature the best thing or the most bestest, most awesomest thing ever? So I think it might be time for an unhinged, barely coherent rant from me. Um, but one of my personal bugbears in life is that I hate just the use of the word natural 
as a positive. Nature is full of horrible, poisonous things <laughs> that want to kill you. Um, people have throughout history, particularly starting with the Romantic movement in the, the uh, what is it, the 1700s or so, I think. Um, Gabriel might know better than me on that one. Um, yeah. The glorification of the natural state of human society, of mankind, of all these things was, was all the rage. And it still permeates our culture to today. You know, we often talk about being your true self and, and things like that, which can be interpreted in a various different ways. But one of the ways it can be interpreted is to act in accordance with your own nature, as in what uh, what comes natural to you. You know, if you should listen to your desires. You should be hedonistic because that's what nature wants you to do. And you see it in products too, right? Uh, all natural food, all natural shampoo, all natural whatever, 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 right? There's always... No chemicals. Yeah, no chemicals, which is a strange thing to think of because, you know, like everything's a chemical, but whatever. <laughs> so I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that in the debate between Rousseau, um, who uh, was French philosopher who said that, you know, everywhere man is born free but in chains, mm. um, and uh, Hobbes, who said that life in the state of nature is Nazi British and short, Hobbes was definitely right. Um, there have been lots of studies done on the on hunter-gatherer societies around the world, um, on uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, you know, who have very little contact with agricultural developed societies, that kind of thing. And also from archaeology, um, looking back in time to see, you know, the bones of our ancestors and how they died and how they lived. Mm. And what researchers have found is that life was extraordinarily violent in the state of nature. Probably the second highest cause of death of something like 13% of all human deaths in the pre-agricultural world were caused by other human beings. Yeah. Human beings. <laughs> and that was before medicine. So even right. if you yeah, broke your leg having an accident, then you're also likely to die. Right. You know, And that was back when an infected wound could kill you. And still 13% of all people were murdered by other people, either in intertribal conflict or intra-tribal conflict where, you know, I don't know, some two people are fighting over a woman or something like that, as, as is very common. Um, and this was brought to my mind recently because I was watching an interesting interview on YouTube. The algorithm decided to push it on us all. Uh, and mm. it was a dude who went to a group of hunter-gatherers who live in the very wild rural parts of Western Tanzania. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these hunter-gatherers, they were quite an interesting group. He, this guy went with them on some hunting trips and stuff, and they were pretty uh, pretty reasonable guys. I mean, they were semi-modern in the sense that they did have contact, you know, quite expensive contact with the outside world, and they wore, like, fairly modern clothing, that kind of stuff. But they lived a lifestyle that was very uh, natural. Um, and... You know, they're very in touch with how human beings have lived for literally hundreds of thousands of years. Gabriel's making signs at me, and I don't know what he means. I'm, try I'm trying to tell him to stop typing because I can hear it. Oh, I'm not typing. Oh, uh, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> I'll just take my hands off my computer. Um, so, you know, these guys, they live in this really, this really, uh, I, got, I don't know, natural state of being, so to speak. 
And the guy was asking them, you know, what their views on the universe were. What are their views on life? What are their views on, um, you know, uh, what is important in life, that kind of thing. And he said, so what's the meaning of life? And the guy basically said, meat and honey. Mm. Now, there's definitely a charm to that. And I'm sure mm. meat and honey are great, especially when you've killed mm. the animal yourself. And, you know, the dude seemed like he was a pretty sharp guy. You know, he gave really practical, intelligent answers to every question the guy asked. But I can't help but feel that his scope of how the universe looks is a bit limited in a way that I think is kind of, you know, from my, from my subjective standpoint, just seems a bit sort of, I don't know, not that great. It seems like there's more to life than meat and honey. I love meat and honey. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I feel like there should be more. More than most people I know, you do love meat and honey. I don't right. I, I must say I don't think this is coming from a place of underappreciation. Yes. For the yes. wonders of meat and honey. <laughs> I am I am fairly fairly round in shape, and it is in part because of meat and honey. <laughs> and so, like, and, and the reason for that is not it's not any slight on him. This dude came from a society where you live really close to the ground and simply getting a nice thing to eat is actually a major achievement. And so, you know, the full flourishing of the human mind is not possible because you quite literally are, you know, avoiding starvation every day. That's how tough life is. And that was what life was like for most of human beings before, you know, uh, before, before agriculture, before civilization, before all these things. And that's nothing, I think, to be aspired to. I think we should be grateful for the fruits and wonders of civilization. It allows us to live longer. It allows us to think more deeply about our lives, the world. Sure, it comes with lots of drawbacks. Um, you know, there were diseases that, for example, things like plagues only happened once people started living in cities. Uh, these didn't ha affect hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and initially, people's diets weren't that good when they adopted agriculture because they were yeah. eating so much less meat. Uh, they actually yeah. physically shrunk. But in the long run, I think that civilization has turned out to be a pretty good thing. Um, and nature is really not not all it's cracked up to be. Another thing that brought this to my attention is I've recently started following a YouTuber called... Well, he's, he's actually on TikTok, but his name on YouTube is Hood Nature. And he's a guy with a backwards cap. And what he does is he tells you in very down-to-earth graphic detail um, facts about animals. And he, he does these really short videos back-to-back, -back, like 60-second uh, clips, right? Because that's what, what does well on TikTok. And he basically tells you about all the terrible things that animals do. So his, his favorite shtick is to, quote-unquote, ruin animals by telling you about how, like, for example bunny rabbits eat their own young when they get stressed yeah. or something like that and, and dolphins rape the, each other and, and dolphins yeah. rape each other and sloths uh you know go to the toilet once a week and if their babies fall out of the tree they just leave them to die because it's too much effort to go and get them you know things about how brutal and harsh nature actually is and he does it like in a comedic way but it's also very it's very accurate like he, he does his research properly um but it's just i think an interesting reminder for us as to how tough the natural world really is and why we really shouldn't see natural as it's not authentic it's not it's no more authentic than anything else we do natural is just it should be a neutral term it's neither good it's not bad it's just the way things are 
without civilization. What do you think of that, Gabriel? Yeah, okay. So, I, I mean, I do, I'm a Hobbesian. Uh, and I think in terms of how humans get together, there's, it's the case that we're, we're more violent when we haven't coordinated violence through what we call a state that kind of monopolizes it over a particular domain. And actually things are still pretty violent at that stage. You can move up a few gears from a state to a state that's kind of monitored by rules, by something like a constitutional monarchy, and then you can really move it up another gear by having a consensual form of government where it's not just that the absolute ruler is constrained by rules but also can be replaced by the vote. Uh, and once you get to that stage, it just turns out people kill each other much less. And it's very nice when people don't kill each other, not just because it's not nice to be killed, but also because it's not nice to live in a way where that seems like a, a, a plausible outcome at any given point. And it is one of the things I've been thinking about. Like, It's so easy to not think about violence and therefore not think about the violent parts of nature. Because yes. when you think about violence, like you and I, I think are pretty evenly matched. And that's an interesting thought, right? Physically. And so many conversations that I have with people whose minds I really value, like we're not evenly matched. And that makes me, if I do say it out loud because I'm talking about violence and I'm trying to like bring out the discomfort in that thing, I can see that sometimes it does make people uncomfortable because they're like, hell's teeth, I didn't think of it that way. And that's kind of a slightly scary thing about it. And the reason it is not very scary at a practical level is because there's a police force and there's other people around that are very civilized. And like, you know, if, if, one, if I was to go completely mad, um, there's a very good chance that sort of the the bad consequences would be mitigated by the coordination of violence that's already in play. Coordination meaning like attitudes that we share and capacities that we have and institutions right. that are right. set up. Very, very artificial, unnatural things that make this natural distinction between bodies, which is really what I'm talking about, um, right. dissolve away. And dissolving it away is an important precondition for having lots of good conversations so it is good that we don't think about violence too much but when one does bring it up it's worth noting all of the things you said about nature not being great on that specifically the human state of nature where i want to push back on you a little bit is like practically okay so it sounds like this guy on tiktok is the antidote to the bee babe uh, i'm not sure if that's an <laughs> official name but anyone who follows the trends will know that like the most successful like animal TikToker is like a good-looking uh, blonde woman who is an expert apiarist, I think you call them. And so because she's so expert when she goes to people's houses to remove the honey, bees, and bear in mind this is in America where a lot of the bees aren't particularly stingy, but nevertheless, right. some of them are. She, she removes them by hand, right? She doesn't put on the sort of hazmat suit. She just cups them <laughs> in her hands and puts them over here. And she speaks in the sort of yoga trainer voice about <laughs> the bees cool. and drops like a few fun facts and then explains how like in this bee colony, there was no queen. I looked for the queen and scooped for four hours bees into my little beehive. When I found that they didn't have a queen, it was okay because I had a spare one. And then you see her pulling it out of her pocket and then she deposits the new queen and she says, the queen is kept in her cage by 
a nesh of sweet candy. The other bees will smell her and then eat their way through to the candy to release the queen. They'll have to accept her. If they don't, they'll kill her. But if they do, she will preside over the new beehive that, I, that I'll take back to my uh, farm where their sweet, delicious honey can be enjoyed by all. Something like that. Dude, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderfully satisfying to watch because everything about it is so natural and so sweet and harmonizing and... Right now, we are in the middle of this like youth day uh, long weekend, which is partly sort of a good reason to talk about terrible things in our country and partly just uh, an excuse to go out and have a bit of a holiday in nature. And I do know lots of people that have like escaped the big smog and are looking at the sunset over the, you know, funny shaped trees in the Limpopo and hearing the sounds of birds and frogs compete as the star of Venus pricks out a, a pinhole of light in the in the night sky and it's, it's just it's a wonderful thing and i know it's a wonderful thing to experience that so i don't want to i don't want to deride that good stuff and it's a little bit like what you were saying where you you really like and appreciate um meat and honey and so what i want to add at a conceptual level is the thought that there are incommensurable values so values that you just can't you can't say one's better than the other. You can't weigh them up on an independent scale. To commensurate is just to give a numbered ranking to one list and another list so that you can have a one-to-one -one mathematical map from one list to the other list of where things line up. And, and the, I think the joys of nature, the joys of appetite, that hedonistic thing, just enjoying the food that you eat and the kind of feeling of falling asleep or waking up, of a sunrise or a sort of dip into a, a stone pond that's just naturally occurred somewhere in the bush. Um, those values can't really be commensurated with the values that can really only be gained by what we call civilization through, mm. uh, through science, through empirical I inquiry of, of a certain I, sophistication. I, and so I don't forget where you're coming from. I think, uh, you know, there is, I'm not going to tell you that nature is ugly because it's not. Uh, but I think I think the key is that nature is a lot like um, a lot like salt. A little bit, really, really good. Makes food delicious, preserves food, all these good things. Way too much, and you're going to be throwing up. Yeah. So and I think going away yeah. for a walk in the bush and staying in a nice lodge. It's like just the right balance of civilization and nature in a lot of ways. <laughs> there is something being, to lost, being lost in the Sahara Desert is, is a little bit too much on the nature side. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a lot of nature, but also the bad nature. So if, if, if nature starts out as neutral, I think it's really useful to think of it starting out as a framework. And then within that framework, it's got space for good and bad. And it's yeah. got space for a scale of values that's in some ways incommensurable with other scales of values. I think this does get trickier when you look at uh, primitive cultures, that phrase that you used, which is interesting because the word culture, something that people, you know, culture, cancel culture. I don't like cancel culture because I like to think of culture as having uh, a start out sort of kind of positive connotation. Yeah, you like to think uh, of it as the best. Yeah, Matthew Arnold's idea and these two books, one called uh, Culture and Anarchy and the other one called Primitive Culture. They sort of 
were both published in the 1870s within it, or 1860s thereabouts uh, in the UK within a year of each other and established very different ways of using that term. And I do so, like thinking about the, that version of the term, uh, but here's what's complicated about it, right? So on the version of the term where culture is just the best, primitive culture might seem like a, a contradiction in terms. In fact, uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who, okay, everyone have a drink, uh, <laughs> sort of drew my attention to the fact that uh, Tynan, the father of sociology, anthropo anthropology really, um, and Matthew Arnold, who was uh, arguably the best sort of literary critic in the UK in the 19th century and was a, a great romantic poet who wrote about the very dark sides of nature, about the waves, sort of relentless, brutal, you know, give a very bleak view on what it's like to look at the ocean um, in my favorite of his works. But the point is that the... The, the idea of primitive culture can, in, in this regard, be sustained, not as a, as a contradiction in terms, as Appiah puts it, but as a real thing, even for those who think culture is best, when you put it like this. It turns out to be the case that someone who grows up in this part of Tanzania who says, you know, the best in life is meat and honey, really is getting more joy and more interesting connection to to something ultimately ineffably beautiful, which is sort of the fact of the matter, through his uh, uh, network of power and prestige and, and property insofar as it exists, for particular cases, he really is enjoying meat and honey more than we could possibly understand. And not all of it all of the time all the same, but like there are occasions where he's done the great hunt and it's been such an interesting thing. And he's held cup these bees in his hands and and sort of put them in the tree where he's where he's getting to something beautiful about that that is like you know in some senses the highest accomplishments of writing that one might achieve or of <laughs> researching or podcasting or something it's just like it's like a high professional accomplishment and mm. if you accept that there's something like that then you might worry i've been chatting with a friend who's worried about like well is it is it actually is there some argument to be made that it's a good idea to sort of freeze cultures in time, which after all was a lot of what apartheid was about? Right. And, and so much more than just apartheid. I mean, uh, the whole American project of putting Indians on reservations was exactly yeah. the same thing. Um, and, and we still do it today, actually, the fact that they, it's illegal to go and speak to an uncontacted tribe in, the, in Brazil. There are some that have no contact with the outside world and the government will prosecute you if they found out that you've gone and tried to interact with them. So it's a tricky and complicated thing. And I think freezing cultural artifact in time is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's so nice to have museums and all that writing stuff. I think that people who like, well, did I really like nature? I really like going on holiday. I think that in some ways I'm just getting a superficial version of what like a true hunter gatherer would get out of that kind of experience. And Maybe maybe Nicholas is right. Maybe it's not as good. But maybe, maybe I can't be sure enough. And the thing to do is really just support a government or support a system that does free some cultures in time. Because maybe, maybe that is better in its own way and I just can't understand it. And so coming from a place of epistemic humility, I'm willing to go with the freezing of cultures in time. I think that's an interesting idea to try and chat. I mean, I definitely think it's not right. But I think it's an interesting idea to try and challenge. 
And I think that the violence point that you really started with, like nature right. can mean to a philosopher, naturalism includes all artificial things. It, at least it includes all people and all buildings that we've made. The natural is, is just sort of everything that you can weigh, to put it one in one sense. <laughs> Um, but there's another sense of natural where, where, where it's contrasted with, with cultural. There's this other sense where it's like this Hobbesian sense where it's like, no, breaking away from this is breaking away from a pattern of violence that is so determined, so overdetermined by a kind of genetic programming. And insofar as it's determined by social interaction is so, uh, prefabricated in how that's going to play out that this is natural and that sort of natural way to go huh? and then the and then the civilized or really you know statified or um you know the the insofar as there's a monopoly on violence that's mitigated by the process of reasoned debate through language that's like the polar opposite and I, yeah, man, dude, I think that freezing cultures in time only seems like a good idea if you confuse culture with, with sort of a coordination of violence. Where you think of a gang culture, when you think of right. rape culture, when you think of cancel culture, this kind of mobby, unthinking, ooh, like there's no one who says cancel culture is good. No one says rape culture is good. There's no debate that it's good. It's definitely, definitely bad because it's definitely like amongst well, harmful are, and precognitive. There are some people who say that cancel culture is good, but there are not many of them. Yeah, they, they sort of prove themselves unserious just in starting out that way. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's really, dude, it's like arguing that the best way for you and I to have conversations is by arm wrestling. I mean, well, I'm yeah. sure dudes have said that. There have been so and so the, and so my point is that if you distinguish that aspect of quote unquote culture, which is really just about violence from the rest, then you can see that the the right thing to always do is try and respond to the duties of care that emerge from like people so that you you go for the less violent option. And one, so there should be no freezing in that regard. And then if you unfreeze that, if you allow the development of that, and it just turns out that the, the development, because it's following reason, you know, as, as much as people come from different places and there are different kinds of ways of doing things, in this regard, they, they hone towards one point, a rules-based consensual government uh, type of system where – you know, where where ideas like show the body, uh, which you can say in Latin, habeas corpus, and rule of law, law and order, sort of basic principles apply each which way. The, those that that conversion can be consistent with the 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 maintenance and sustenance and actually evolution and refinement of traditions that really form the, the rich cultural part of culture. Because there's some guy, you know, there's some traditions about making honey and about making certain meals out of meat and of hunting and doing it and all that really have survived into very sophisticated, very modernized yeah, places. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me just say that I, when I say that natural is, is necessarily 
uh, good, I don't necessarily mean to to stick a knife in tradition. Because I think tradition really is just accumulated civilization. <laughs> yeah. Not, not always, not always, <laughs> but sometimes. Yeah. And it keeps growing. I mean, the part of the thing that sparked this for me is over the weekend, Elena and I were talking about tradition, my sweet, my sweet fiance, and she was. We were like, "What do we? What is the etymology of this?" I was trying to ask her, like, "What's your What's the? What do philosophers say about tradition when they mention it?" And there's some Russian philosopher who's sort of making waves, talking about traditions having eroded in America, such that it's it's become a purposeless society. And I don't know. Interesting idea. I kind of disagree, but the the we we thought maybe i disagree because i've got a different sense of what tradition is in the first place hmm. and so we're like so what is tradition and a nice way to try and figure out what a word is a traditional way as it turns out <laughs> is to look up its etymological roots what are the senses that it had in previous languages that have like sort of evolved in this to find to to line up a sound with an old idea a stable sound a new and then stable sound for an old idea and it turns out that in Latin, it's tradere or tradare. And it means something like to, to break with or to betray. And it was very interesting to have betray, the old Latin word for betrayal, grow into the English word for tradition. And there's something to it which is exactly right which is that whenever a father hands over a tradition to his son or a mother to her daughter or a mother to her son or a father to his daughter, when something is handed down, a way of, you know, a family business or a, a way of making the food or a trick to play with the little kids when they're being a bit stressed out, whatever it is, wherever something's passed on like that, it is a betrayal. It is an imperfect facsimile. There is some information. There is some quality of the act that is lost. And of course, something is sustained. But it's, mm. but it's, it's that, and feeling that sense of betrayal, as it were, of fidelity of the original um, sort of version of the meme is, it's a hard thing to feel, but I think it's something that families really do feel. Uh, it's around times of death, birth, and marriage. Like they feel that there is something, yes, it's, life is a betrayal because it always ends in death. <laughs> and that is very hard. And and in a way, the best you can do, you know, other than sort of um, refining for yourself a good code and and uh, and enjoying yourself and, and the like, is to, is to pass something on. You know, that is one of the best things you can do. Is to pass mm -hmm. something on, and it's going to be betrayed. It's it's somehow, if it's a piece of property and you're building a dynasty in a few generations, someone's going to piss it down the drain. <laughs> and, <laughs> or know, at the very least, put some really ugly fittings on it. Yes, something like that. So, but it's but but that is also part of part of part of what makes tradition actually valuable, is that it evolves. Is that it? Right. Is is that it, it? Is that is that one? You know, in the family level, you know, finds a level of love that's like, well, I entrust 
this to you to screw up in a better way. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is a this is a this is an important aspect of tradition. And I remember as a high school debater, Nicholas and I were both high school debaters at Cincinnati. I the first, there's one the first high school debate I ever saw was Gabriel doing a practice debate against someone else because he was in the trick <laughs> at the time. Yeah. I can only really remember one bit of feedback from a judge at this stage. And the judge did give us the the L. They said that we lost the debate. And I was very irritated by that. But I was usually a bit of an authoritarian, actually. And when <laughs> other guys would complain that the judges were being unfair, I'd be the guy to say, no, 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 no guys. We must just take the loss here. Uh, those judges are older and smarter than us, and we should rather be figuring out how we can do this better. I was that kind of guy. The ref blew a yellow card against us. I was often the guy to say, well, maybe he's right. It's just a, just an authoritarian strain um, in its way, commitment to reason. Sometimes misguided. But the 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 thing about this judge's comment that made me so irritated and that made me say, no, for once I know this judge is just foolish or biased or knavish, but I thought really just foolish, was that he said, you guys lost the debate because one of your premises was that traditions change. And then you argued that premise and they, you know, the opposing team, opposing team said that can't be the case and you try to rebut that and some of it was kind of funny, but really he said, it's axiomatic that traditions don't change. Well, that's and I, silly. Yeah, dude, I thought... I thought, what a sad thing. I mean, this guy was like, told us his biography a little bit afterwards, like, you know, came from a township, first in his family to go to Wits, uh, you know, trying to make it as a young professor, but just still a grad student. And I thought, you, 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 you are on such an ambitious track and you're so smart and you're pushing so hard. But just from that brief bit of your biography, I feel like I can pick up reasons to suspect that you have been disconnected from a lot of traditions, that you, you are struggling to, to, to know from a lived experience perspective that when mom is making a traditional dish, she's likely to remember how grand changed some element of it. Versus how, how the great-grandmother did it that she never really met. But she heard about in part through this change and how she responded to it and criticized it and then accepted it. And how that was part of so many stories of your own family being different generation to generation. With the persisting form of a tradition through that. Right. That, so I think that tradition can, is just that thing that moves through change, just like a person is that thing that moves right. through change. We can, we can kind of define tradition as almost a, a link through time that changes slowly. I mean, these are the key elements, right? It has to change slowly, can't change too fast because then it's not a tradition, but it does change. And it does, through that change, it helps to provide a link with the past where every step along the way, there's a little bit of change, a little bit of evolution. And I think that if you have that picture of tradition in mind and, and, it's, and it's separated from all that stuff about violence, then you see why maybe one of the worst ideas about nature is that it's best to keep people trapped in kind of natural aspect 
socially speaking, right. politi politically speaking, because that way you'll preserve their traditions. No. It's no. like saying the, the way to run the zoo is to just pour, literally, just pour that aspect all over it and have all the animals freeze and die in, in one pose and then have the kids come and look at that to learn about right. you know elephants and lions and so on. It's the most unnatural idea, as it turns out, uh, but using nature in a different sense. No, definitely. Those hunter-gatherer dudes are not living as their ancestors did. They wear modern clothes. They use modern materials for some of the things they do, and they don't move around like they once did. Dude, and insofar as there are guys who are like living that life, like tour guides to a kind of performance artwork, um, where you know where the where the structures of the state are supervening, so that no one's getting stoned and killed for silly reasons uh, that only make sense back in the day. And so that does mean it has to be commercialized in some sense. Dude, that is, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing to dedicate your life to. You know, if you want to be a hippie or you want to be, you know, uh, be a cultural guardian of some intangible goods. Yeah. And dedicate yourself to that. That's, that's a wonderful thing to de dedicate your life. It's a great individual choice to make. It's not, it's definitely, um, well, that's the key point, the individual choice. Yeah. And for that kind of individual choice to be made, you know, th th you really do need the sense of liberty, which is that kind of freedom, which only exists within a coordination of violence. Right. Um, right. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. So, so okay. Uh, we've so, talked a lot but, about violence. But I want to so I want to say one more thing about nature, which connects back to our campaign, right? Which is that in the insofar as people push back against the uh, the the attempt to normalize saying racism is not the problem, which is which is a good thing to normalize in the same way that it's good to normalize, um, you know, flooding is not the problem. That should be a normal thing to say. If it turns out that someone's making a claim that, you know, flooding is what's going on here, but you're in the middle of the desert, it should be normal to say, look, flooding is not the problem here. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be something that's that's dismissed or that makes people uncomfortable just from the start. It, it, it should be a claim about a case that's evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think one which, based on our polling, should start from the assumption that, like, if you think racism is the problem, then you better be bringing some evidence. There is some burden of proof on you because usually, for most people's uh, most of most people's lives, uh, we can tell through our polling, uh, racism is not a, is you know something eighty percent of people report having experienced none of in the last five years. So it's not a normal thing. So if you want to come and say this is racist, then the burden of proof is on you. And people must listen to it open mindedly, but they can do that uh, on a kind of equal footing. So. That's, you know, the basic claim again. The, one of the pushbacks is the polling is rubbish and you can't ever trust polling. But the more interesting pushback in a way is that you guys are discounting how much, how terrible apartheid was. And it's, in some ways, if you just listen to how the conversation goes, and I just listened to, for example, a conversation on, on Lotus FM, I think it was. This guy's like, you know... How, if these guys don't think racism is the problem, how can they explain 
the disproportional rates of unemployment across white, black, Indian, and colored people. They, they have no means of explaining it. Clearly, racism is the problem. And in some sense, I think the insecurity that is being exposed, he was just one example of like, you know, a dozen if I, if I also looked at social media responses, where their real insecurity is about the natural hypothesis about races. In other words, if you're if you think races are natural, that's time that naturally. Yeah, sorry, that, that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was very well planned in advance, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's true, dude. If you think races are natural things, then it's terrifying to hear that race is not the problem. Because then then you you start you start feeling like but hold on, are you, are you, if you're open to the natural racist idea, then you start thinking maybe a greater proportion of black people are poor than white people because black people are inferior. And so then this is, I mean, this is an incorrect thought. And it's a terrifying thought because you clearly, you wouldn't be making the syllogistic slip if you already had well ring-fenced that idea inside another good argument that deflates it. So you feel like you need to argue against that idea by arguing against the claim that racism is not the problem. Right. Right? You follow me? Shall I try to put that another way? It's like this. I think I'm some imaginary South African who's Wait, can semi- I, can, can, I yeah? try, can I try some of that? Yeah. What you're saying is, that because a lot of these guys have sort of basically a racist conception of the universe, that they believe that if discrimination against people on the basis of race is not the problem, then the only alternative answer is that one race is inferior to another. Exactly. Exactly, dude. And so to them, everywhere racism, this, this, sort, this thought that like racism is the immediate explainer it's the, the it's the explainer for yesterday and five years ago and ten years ago as well as forty years ago, fifty years ago, sixty years ago. Uh, woo! That idea saves them from being biological racists. So it's it's like the worst way to avoid being a biological racist is just thinking that that inequality of outcomes is is necessarily due to some supernatural force some ghostly intervention that has its fingers on the scales sort of deliberately and conspicuously because some people belong to one race and other people belong to another and and that's really not the accidental screw-ups of like for example race-based policies that are trying to help one race and then make worse by accident there's no ghost it's just like it's a it's it's a really common problem of people assigning malice uh, where there's just incompetence. I mean, this happens in a lot of political and social analysis across the world. Um, no, I think that's exactly right. And and uh, it, it really does bedevil society. And, and and I think this is this might be why it's particularly this kind of way of looking at the world is very prevalent amongst what one of our colleagues calls the woke boomers. And these are older kind of 50s, 60s white dudes 
who clearly they they were opposed to apartheid, but they clearly have a sort of a discomfort with the way things are going now. And I think it's because they're exactly living in this framework that Gabriel talked about, mm. which is they still actually do hold race as the central determinant of people's lives. Yeah, it's a hard and and I've got some sympathy for someone who grew up in an environment that that kind of baked that idea into their thinking through not only childhood but also adolescence and maybe even post adolescence. It's it's hard to fully figure out the the kinds of viruses, the kinds of memes that have infected your coding. Uh, I think we all face that challenge throughout our lives and for some people they can't figure out like their problem is really that they're biological racists and the way that they cover up that problem is by thinking of some supernatural apartheid ghost which is to blame for all of the big issues of the day and that way they're like clearly i'm not a biological racist because i think inequality of results comes from the devil and right. and so they you know it's like quite a sweet survival technique in its way <laughs> but it's got very very poisonous political implications and i think that sort of white um woke boomer as you describe it i think that that's an important kind of category to pick out insofar as in the 90s and 2000s, and even the 2010s, it wielded that kind of uh, characterization of a person, picked out a great portion of those who occupied the tastemaker elite sort of corridors of esteem. Right. But I feel like that uh, group is is much less relevant today. And no, that's that you have a, yeah. you've got a sort of rainbow partition of people who... Um, rainbow coalition of people who kind of don't really believe that they are of a kind um but but really get are. along yeah they get along with like this 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 uh this modus vivendi this this kind of coordination of violence the system of rent seeking um and scapegoating that perpetuates itself to their to their not only to their own psychological benefit. It's not just the psychological thing of making excuses to not deal with a complicated mistake that you've made in your mind. It's also like financially pretty lucrative to right, right. to to walk both sides. I, anyway, I just I, want to briefly briefly go back because we're we're about to close. Um, but I just wanted to briefly go back to something you said. You talked about on a supernatural force holding down things. And someone might say that that's a, a straw man, but it's really not. And we're definitely not the first people to point this out. But so much of race nationalism and critical theory and all these ideas, they have this, uh, and white monopoly capital conspiracy theories, they all have this almost supernatural element ascribed to their, uh, to their opponents. It's like structural racism is so difficult to, it's, it's always defined, it's always identified by its outcomes and never like by there's no mechanism that people point to they may point to an anecdotal evidence of that person over there was racist but they're never able to find that part of the law that's like really 
make, uh, screwing over black people or, or, uh, you know, or, or people find the stats in South Africa and statistical discrimination. Like there's no, right, no exactly. one's done the exercise where they're sending people out to different stores and different job seeking things. And, and then they're finding like, exactly, these guys exactly. aren't getting a job. In fact, so, if they were to do that, they'd find that like black executives get paid four times more than white executives. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and, and it's because they're so willing to ascribe these almost supernatural properties. It's like, as, as, as we've commented on the show before, um, you know, even if no one is being racist, you can still have a racist system or outcome or something. Yeah, right? yeah. This is a, you can have that's racist... a classic supernaturalist line. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like permeating every single layer of society and every crack where you're not looking, and that's what makes it so hard to push back against because it is held as an immutable faith item. Um, and I must say, this is definitely a can of worms that I shouldn't open as we try to close the show, but. Yeah, there's definitely something to the idea that when people, uh, uh, especially in the, the 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 first world, lost religion, that they started looking for something else to fill that void. Yeah, it's a classic <laughs> idea. It's a it's a yeah. classic idea, and it's a good it's a good one to remember. I think a, another side of it is that all this talk of lived experience, lived experience is a very important part of a lot of empirical investigations, but when it takes such an emphatic role in being the epistemic gateway to understanding what we're talking about. Uh, it's nice to remember William James, Henry James's brother, uh, and the, and one of the great sort of so anthropologists of religion, uh, uh, sort of before World War One. Um, and he, you know, what he did so well was like record people's descriptions of miraculous experience, because it became, you know, to theologians and philosophers, philologists who were thinking about this problem, it, it was like, how can we reconcile? The domain of science with the domain of religion, and so okay, so one it may be prescriptive, gives you rules about what to do. One's descriptive, okay, that works for a while. But then some philosophers are like, well, maybe we should figure out about rules of what to do that don't depend on religion, especially because we had to come up with a secular state to achieve kind of religious tolerance, and so on and so forth. So that distinction doesn't totally work. Um, but one of the nice th things that William James kind of helped out with was. Uh, demonstrating what had already sort of become a bit of an implicit consensus, which was the thought that, well, religion is that kind of truth, which depends upon some kind of individual miraculous experience, individual ex lived experience, which is to say miraculous, which is to say, it's not, you can't triangulate on this. Someone else who shared this experience can also know, but you can't show this right. in the numbers. You can't find this right. in the mechanism. You can't have an empirical, uh, you know, third-party kind of discourse about this thing. That, in fact, is imposing an outside system on it, which is, you know, you guys must keep to your own domain. You can do that outside system analysis thing for trying to figure out why balls roll down a hill or why the sun rises in the west, east and sets in the west. But don't bring that to me and why I'm down with this religion. And that is such a trademark of 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 wokeism mm -hmm. um, that that I think it's 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 worth noting, and and it's uh, yeah it's 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 scary no, and it's irritating and I prefer thinking of it as a cult rather than a religion because I think that it's yeah, both no, new exactly. and doesn't seem to stand the chance of generating yes. the kinds of and and like and like most cults it isolates traditions. you from your loved ones from traditions and it forces you to give. Um, all everything you have to the cult rather than to uh, to 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 your family or your life or your society or whatever. Mm. Um, it takes yeah, everything in your life. 
It's a bit totalitarian in that way. Can be. But okay. but yeah, dude, I think I think it's 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 nice to notice these abstract things about it. I do think that um it's also it's 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 nice to talk about these issues and see what the anxieties are that 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 kind of create an itch which is then scratched by going to this place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. And and showing that you can scratch that itch much sooner and in much less uh, well, without joining a cult. <laughs> yeah, which is <laughs> yeah. You can you can have a religiously fulfilled life where you believe in a supernatural power without joining a cult. <laughs> yeah, and you can and you can figure out that biological racism is a silly idea without having to invent supernatural racism as an yes. explainer of all unequal outcomes. And you can sort of get along with thinking of nature as sort of uh, having having a bearing on how human societies work that's in some ways terribly wicked from the beginning and it's other ways opens up the route to success and fruition right. all of these things can be done and it's wonderful that they can be done and i i'm betting that more south africans are doing it just now than they were in the thick of the lockdown when we were kind of dealing with other things and then they were before when ramaphoria was so dominant and before that when it was so easy yeah, to talk about cults personnel <laughs> replacement being more important than policy replacement yeah maybe yeah maybe as we anyway. as we dive through the first wave through the third wave we we, we 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 might look forward to the prospect of one small incremental traditional step in the right direction on the other side Brilliant. All right. Things to recommend. What do you have? I recommend seeing Nicholas's haircut, which he's been showing. <laughs> yes. And it's there absolutely was, amazing. There was, was a bit of an accident that happened at one point, and the, uh, <laughs> the shaver slipped, and so there is a amusing bald patch. Um, a gaping wound in your pate. But the good news is um, I have enough hair to comb over it, so it's I'm ridiculous. learning skills for when I'm 40. Uh, which is very good. Yeah. Uh, so what am I going to recommend? I'm going to recommend what I already recommended, which is uh, Hood Nature. Silly little videos, fun little videos. Um, if you're an older person, you listen to them, you'll feel in touch with the youth for about for, for, for a couple of minutes until you get lost again. I'm, I know that I feel that way. <laughs> All the, the terms of the slang um, that I've been learning. Uh, but they, yeah, they're good fun, and you actually learn a lot of interesting things about animals because some of them are also quite uh, interesting and informative. Um, so that's Hood, H-O-O-D, and then another word, nature. Gabriel, anything else apart from my haircut? Um, the oldest biological experiment, I think is the name of the YouTube clip. And it is from Veritasium. So the other way to get it would just be to get Veritasium's latest uh, thing. He's like a YouTube guy who's been going for years, gets many millions of views each time. Successful guy uh, who sort of talks about science. Anyway, it's about this experiment that's been going for 30 or 40 years where they've bred E. coli in a lab and then watched how it evolved. And uh, it's, I think it's somewhere there on the West Coast, Stanford or something. And the, and the professor who kind of walks you through this experiment comes to a fabulous conclusion about nature 
which is at once very dark and also sort of speaks to I think what Nicholas started out with the kind of inevitability of common sense winning in the end uh, <laughs> and and never being resolved not like that's a final point like it just keeps going it just at some stage it keeps getting more reasonable um anyway check that out uh I think it's a it's a it's a lacquer a lacquer treat from the internet indeed anyway uh, we'll see you around next week uh, you keep that flag of liberty flying have a wonderful week everyone <laughs>